Welcome to our special seven questions edition of How to Win a Campaign, where we talk with some of our favorite authors, content creators, and influencers. You can find our seven questions that inspired this conversation at thecampaignworkshop.com or in the show notes. This week, we have Gigi Georges, who wrote an incredible book, Down East, Five Main Girls and the Unseen Story of Rural America. Gigi is a Brooklyn native who now splits her time between New Hampshire and Down East, Maine. She wrote her first book after an extensive career in politics, public service, and academia, a former White House special assistant to President Clinton and state director for Senator Hillary Clinton. Georges has taught political science at Boston College, been a program director at the Harvard Kennedy School, and served as a managing director at the Glover Park Group. She recently published her first narrative nonfiction book. Gigi, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joe. It's great to be here. So what inspired you to write the book? So as you know, I had this long career in politics and policy and had pretty much stepped away from politics when I first started thinking about the book. I had moved into more academic world and I was teaching in Boston College. But what really inspired me was that my husband, Jeff, and I had moved from New York City, where we were both born and raised, to northern New England and had started to raise our young daughter in these more rural places. And I had spent my entire career focusing on urban issues, on urban education, working in urban politics. And I became so much more attuned to the narrative about rural America that was swirling around all of this. You know, it was 2016. It was before the election, but there was a lot of increasing focus on rural voters. And I wanted to know more about what it was like for young people to grow up in rural places. And I particularly wanted to know if the narrative we keep hearing, we continue to hear it to this day, that dominates the conversation about rural America, that downbeat narrative of hopelessness and despair, if that was reality on the ground. So I set off and started to do the research and started to find my way to these five young women in Down East Maine. Spoiler alert, right? Like on the book, like what did you find? I found something that was surprising to me and I think would be surprising to a lot of folk who don't come from rural places. And that is that despite the incredible challenges that people in rural places face, for example, the place I reported from, which is a very geographically isolated part of Maine, there's a lot of poverty, there is opioid addiction, there are a lot of difficulties around the economic challenges and social challenges that come with being in a rural place. What I found was that despite all of those challenges, the community there, and particularly the young girls that I spent four years following and reporting on, were thriving. And not only were they thriving, Joe, but they felt incredibly emotionally and psychologically bonded to the place they called home. They felt very passionate about their love for the place they grew up in. 
it seems these days that there is, as you talked about, this sort of, I think, misconception or sometimes misunderstanding between people who live in urban, suburban communities and rural communities. Did you see that in writing this book? I saw that there is what I call a narrow lens on rural places. What I realized was when I started to spend time with the community there and with the young women there, that, as I said before, there is a real sense of thriving and a real sense of optimism. And that I think what we often do as outsiders in looking at rural America from a very distant vantage point is that we keep that lens trained on those narrow issues of problems and challenges. And that when you widen the lens and you put the experience of folks in rural places like down East Maine into context, you see so much more. You see the kind of what I, what I refer to as social capital, tremendous social capital, tremendous sense of community, of neighbors helping neighbors, of really relying on each other through those tough times and embracing the place that they come from. And that reality, that widening of the lens, I think reflects the kind of sense of pride that folks in these places have that we too often overlook. Amazing to hear. Has the success and perseverance of these girls that you feature in the book taught you anything about how folks can succeed in different places that might be hard? Talk a bit about their perseverance. Yes. These five young women in different ways, they showed so much perseverance and so much resilience. I mean, I think about, for example, one of the young women in the book, Willow, who grows up in this very, very challenged set of circumstances. There is physical abuse in the home. There is substance abuse in the home. She moves seven times before she's eight and um, ends up living with uh, her grandparents, her paternal grandparents. And while she's there and tried and convicted of a felony and, and goes off to prison. So she does not get a break, this, this young woman. Yet, with the help of those around her, the mentorship of this tremendous art teacher, who I really get into profiling in the book, and the help of her best friend, Vivian, who is also one of the five protagonists in the book, she finds the strength and the way forward that brings her to a place where she is not only surviving, but thriving. And that is just one of the examples, and there are many examples uh, with each of these young women in different ways of how they show that grit and that resilience and how it both comes from within and also from those who surround them, whether it be immediate family, extended family, or in the cases where those particular units aren't as strong, from the church, from nonprofits that are grown from the ground up from community members who just are looking out for them. And it's really quite something to see it in action the way I did over the course of that period of reporting. As someone who has worked in politics for a really long time, Gigi, how does this sort of give you perspective, how to engage and talk to rural voters during what is a, I think, 
hard time, you know, as a Democrat and progressive Democrat, I think it's been hard for Democrats to engage and talk to rural voters. You have any thoughts around that? I do, Joe. And I act not too long ago published a piece in Bloomberg.com on this very topic right after uh, the most recent round of elections where we saw Democrats losing more support among rural voters. We saw what happened in Virginia. We saw what happened in New Jersey and in some other places. You know, my best advice here is perhaps the simplest, which is that I think that strategists spend a lot of time thinking about how to carry their message to voters. And that's important. Often we, and I'll include myself in this as a former strategist, often we don't take the time to really listen. To listen with an open mind and an open heart. And to try to put aside those preconceived notions that we all have. And I think that in going into more rural places, that there is a tendency to say, look, we know what you need, and here it is, rather than to say, hey, we know that you're hurting. We may not understand quite where you're coming from, but we want to listen, and we want to work together towards possible solutions. And that opens the door. And it's interesting, Joe, because I've been paying attention more and more to candidates, um, particularly Democratic candidates who are doing well in rural areas. And they're a little bit few and far between. Sure. But they start to a person with that very motto of listening, of, of knocking on those doors in a way that says, hey, you know, you may not have a sense of who I am. I may not have as good a sense of who you are as I should. Let's sit down and talk about it. And I will listen first before I talk at you. So that's a first step. I know it's not the only step, but it certainly, I think, would take folks some of the way. Yeah, we did a episode earlier this year with Dave Fleischer, who is one of the preeminent experts on deep canvassing, where he does these very long form conversation with voters, where it starts very open-ended. And these are 20-minute conversations that they do, and that really starts from a point of where the voter or the resident is versus the issue that you're talking about. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting that you say that and and it, it's clearly, it takes a lot of time and energy, but I, as you were talking, I was thinking about last summer, right after the book was published, I've been back to the area that I reported on a number of times since, but I did go back to speak at a couple of events, the local library and the local Grange and a couple of others. I was so moved, Joe, to hear from folks in the audience, from the, from the area, from the community, stand up and say, thank you for showing others that we exist. Thank you for allowing us to be seen and heard. And they really weren't looking for that much more than just being seen and heard. And I talk about in the book, this region, this area that I report on being the valley of the unseen, of the overlooked. And it very much is to many folks who live there. That's amazing to hear. And I also find like, full disclosure, everybody, Gigi and I have known each other for a long time from a political perspective. And it's really interesting for me to see you go from someone who had been in politics, then going to academia and now 
becoming an author and using some of those political skills to capture stories. Tell me what that transition was like and how you use sort of the skills you honed in politics to frankly be a better author. Yeah, well, I have to take a minute and say that I, I have such fond memories of those old days when we did a, a bunch of training sessions and, and worked on campaigns and, and all of that. I do believe that the training and skills that I learned back in the day in politics have served me incredibly well as I've moved through to academia and particularly to my current life as a narrative nonfiction writer. You do learn in politics to, particularly coming from a field background initially, how to build that rapport and how to build that trust with folks that don't know you, whether it's knocking on doors and doing canvassing or working with volunteers or just simply engaging around campaign efforts with folks who are coming together around common purpose. And so I think that those skills around building trust, building rapport, really thinking about the perspective of others as you hone a strategy and build a strategy uh, have carried me through very, very well in the way that I was able to approach these five young women and work to build trust with them. And I'm happy to say that out of that trust building and out of that time we spent together, those four or so years that I spent in the community, we forged a real set of friendships that I hope will, will last a long time. And, and along the way, it's been fun to meet folks, even in the Down East region, who are interested in politics. And we didn't really talk politics, but I was able to give them some war stories to laugh about and think about. But this is a first book, right? This is your first published book? Yes. And so... There may be people listening to the podcast are thinking about getting out of politics and writing a book someday, asking for a friend. What's that process like? Well, it is a different kind of journey in some ways in that it really, for me, required taking a lot of time to think about what my perspective was, what my goals would be in telling a story and reorienting myself toward the page as opposed to the uh, relationships that you build around uh, sort of political work. And I had this idea. I felt very strongly about it. I knew when I met these young women that theirs was a story that I had to write. And I think that that got me part of the way to completing this project. So, you know, if I were thinking about advice for folks who feel like they have a story to tell, it is to really think about what that story is, hone it, make sure that you're passionate about it because it's a lot of work to build a story from start to finish and to do it in book form. But if you think you have a good story, just start writing because the story will come. And all of the organizational work that is required in putting together a book length form product, uh, that will come later. But I would say sit down, sit in front of your computer, sit in front of your pad of paper and just let the words pour out. And that's what I did. And I had the help of some really remarkable protagonists in these five young women. So the story really did flow from them. How long did it take you to write the book? So all in, from start to finish, it was a five-year project. I wrote as I went, but the most intense writing exercise for the book came in that final year. 
I am a big fan of narrative nonfiction. So were there books that you read in narrative nonfiction that were an inspiration for you to write this? And what are some of your favorites? There were, Joe. Not long before I started writing, I read Evicted, which is a a tremendous book about tenants and the world of tenants in low-income communities. I also am a very, very big fan of Catherine Boo's Behind the Beautiful Forevers, and that doesn't take place in America. That's, That's in India, but it is a beautifully written book um, and has rightly received all of those accolades for both the beauty of it and the poignancy of it in taking on a very, very difficult topic. I did read a lot of rural nonfiction. And so, you know, I loved Saris Marsh's Heartland, which is memoir more than narrative nonfiction, but has uh, significant elements of narrative nonfiction. And I could go on and on. Yeah, no, there, there's a lot. I just read Empire of Pain, which I think is amazing. If you haven't read it, it's a fantastic work. I mean, Nickled and Dimed, I read a few years back, as well as Nomadland, and probably my favorite in the political. I think A Prayer for the City, which is Buzz Bissinger, I think was great. I also think that uh, Friday Night Lights, the original book, though I like the series, is also fantastic. So those are some of my favorites. Yes, Joe, I've got to do a big shout out on Friday Night Lights and Buzz Bissinger, who I think is just an extraordinary reporter and writer. And I tell you, I went back to Friday Night Lights many times while going through the writing process. It was one of my go-tos to get the inspiration that is required to really think as a narrative nonfiction writer and do right by it. All right. So uh, last question, do you think you'll ever return to politics? I don't think so, Joe. (laughs) I hung up my cleats quite a while ago. I am grateful beyond words for the experiences that I was able to have uh, working in politics and government. And, And I owe a great deal to the many, many mentors who took me through that experience. But politics has changed. It is not for the faint of heart. It never was, but it is even less so now. I think I'm ready to stay in my office and keep writing. Great. Well, we look forward to having you back when you publish your second book, whatever that becomes. Thank you, Gigi, for answering our questions. You can find her book, Down East, Five Main Girls and the Unseen Story of Rural America. Wherever you get a book, you might even be able to see her coming to a town near you as things open up as she tours to show her book. And that's it. And we'll talk to you again soon. Great. Thank you so much, Joe. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you today. How to Win a Campaign is Joe Fold, Martin Diego Garcia, Elizabeth Rowe, Dina Castillo, Amanda Ellis, Porobi Saha, and Anna Cruxen. Music by Danielle Pinto. Sound editing by The Sound Sanagoma. Special thanks to the team at the Campaign Workshop. Please review, like, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast.